Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, a look at some of the election-related bills being debated at the state capitol, and the Diamondbacks look to their uniforms for a new revenue stream. But first, Arizona has been dealing with a teacher shortage for several years, and new data show the situation isn't necessarily getting better. The Arizona School Personnel Administrators Association survey shows as of January, more than a quarter of teacher vacancies statewide were unfilled. That equates to nearly 2,900 openings. Of the vacancies that have been filled, more than 40 percent of them are by teachers who don't meet the state's standard certification requirements. Lennon Audrain is a teacher at Skyline High School in Mesa Public Schools and a researcher on the Next Education Workforce team at ASU. I spoke with him earlier this morning before his students got to class, and I asked what he makes of the new numbers. You know, Mark, I'm not shocked initially by this. In fact, when you look at the trends in the data over the past um, five to six years that that the AASPA has been doing this survey, uh, it's about on par. I'm not shocked given the pandemic. I'm not shocked given um, teacher working conditions here in the state of Arizona and teacher compensation. Um, It it seems on par with all of the working conditions and, and the design of the education workforce itself. These are the outcomes that we're producing with this design. What are you seeing at your school in terms of classrooms that maybe have long-term subs or teachers that don't meet the, the requirements or, you know, maybe larger class sizes, anything like that? Yeah, we, we have a few, and I think like many Arizona schools, we have a few teachers that don't meet the requirements um, to be a certified teacher in the classroom. We have a few long-term subs. Um, and, and you know what? Although the pandemic last year, you know, there was there was an alarming substitute shortage um, of people who could come in when people were facing COVID illness or COVID-related illnesses. Um, this year it's not um, it's not as much. It's not as substantial. At my school in particular, and I think across schools in Arizona, it's not as dire as it was last year for substitutes. Um, There are still obviously, because of of just, again, the design of our workforce, people who are in um, long-term substitute positions, not with the proper certifications. Um, But again, when when we've constructed a workforce where one teacher is responsible for instruction for a group of 25 students all day or 150 students seven times a day, um, right, this is, these are the outcomes we get. So how do we change that? I know that that you are working on and looking into maybe other ways to try to handle the classroom and, and, you know, have teachers work with with different students. What are like what are some ways to maybe work around this, given the number of available teachers that are there and and the need that is there for them? Sure. I, I think, um, and I've said it before in the interview, but if we take a step back and think about, well, what's causing the teacher shortage? You know, it's one thing to focus on teacher recruitment. It's one thing to focus on teacher retention. Uh, and when you look at national data, uh, the data tell us that 90% of the teacher shortage is due to teachers leaving their school or leaving the profession in general. So this isn't a problem with getting enough teachers into the classroom. It's really about keeping teachers in the classroom. And so as we're starting to think about solutions to this this nebulous um, teacher shortage, we have to start thinking about 
keeping teachers in the classroom. And so one way that I think we could do a better job of that um, and that I've been working on with colleagues at Arizona State University um, and with district partners um, in Arizona, Mesa Public Schools where I teach um, and in public schools across Arizona and across the country, is think differently about how we staff schools. So quickly, I mean, imagine you are a 22, 23 year old graduate from your teacher prep program on a good day, right? You, you finish up at ASU uh, and you step into a classroom as a third grade teacher. Well, you're responsible for teaching those students how to do third grade math, how to read at a third grade level, and to do all of those things with essentially maybe a year of student teaching if you're lucky under your belt. And at the same proficiency, right, effective or highly effective, because we want all of our third grade students to read and do math well, as a teacher next door who's been doing it for 30 years. And so who's going to get the best instruction? Um, and what strengths maybe does that veteran teacher next door not have that the novice teacher does? And so as we start to think about, right, across the country, the statistics show us that about half of teachers, almost half of teachers leave the profession within the first five years. And so if we're thinking about creating a workforce design that keeps teachers in the profession, we have to think about how we keep those novice teachers in the profession. Uh, and so potentially one solution is to work and to build team-based staffing models in schools where teachers work on teams instead of me as a third grade teacher being responsible for my 25 kids and the teacher next door being responsible for her 25 kids. It's both of us responsible for all 53rd graders and we're responsible for all of their outcomes. It seems as though schools have at least been thinking about something along those lines, right? Like they've been working to have, for example, mentor teachers for new teachers, things like that, which is not exactly what you're describing. But I wonder if maybe that sense of not feeling like you're alone in the classroom with your students is maybe the key here, it, regardless of, of how it manifests itself, be it with a mentor teacher being on a team. Like it seems like that feeling of, you know, you have support is pretty important. Absolutely. And we know that mentor teachers are important in the first few years. Um, we know all of these things about professional learning in the first few years. What we have not done is integrated them systematically into schools. And so my mentor teacher in my first few years of teaching would come in maybe, uh, you know, once a month, once a quarter. Um, but that wasn't enough time for me to have a sustained relationship with that mentor teacher. Um, or, you know, we, we call them also, we have instructional coaches. I had an instructional coach my first few years that would come in and do that as well. Um, but because of the structure of schools themselves, one teacher assigned to their one group of students all day long or assigned to their one group of students seven times a day, we haven't built those structures. Um, it would be, and I always present it as like the equivalent to, um, and we presented at ASU as the equivalent to healthcare. Um, right, you wouldn't go and ask a brain surgeon of 25 years and a brain, you know, a recent graduate from medical school to do brain surgery, right, uh, right out the gate. Their first year, you wouldn't expect the same outcomes from them. You would want them to have that mentoring, that expertise of the 25-year brain surgeon. But in schools, we don't expect that. We expect people who come straight out of teacher preparation to be able to accomplish the same outcomes as the person with 25 years experience. And and that's just not the case. It's just not the case. It's humanly impossible. How big of a shift would would it be to to implement this for schools? Like, would it mean hiring more teachers? Would it mean a, ch a shift, a change in the way that students are taught? Yeah, it, it means both of those things. I think we have to think of two things um, when we think of schools and schooling. Um, and there's a researcher at Stanford, David Labry, um, has this idea that schools need to be both worth doing and doable. 
And so if we want more personalized learning, right, we, we've come in the age of technology with AI where chat GTP can write an essay for you, then that's beyond the point. But we have lots of tools that students can go and work at their own pace on different things um, to meet those needs, right, to accelerate some of the instructional loss that we saw because of the pandemic. But if we want to be able to accomplish those things, if we want to be able to accomplish deeper learning, then we have to build teams of educators. That work needs to be also doable. Uh, in, in the schools that are making these shifts, um, it, it takes a while. It doesn't happen overnight. It's, it's both a culture shift and infrastructural shift. Um, it doesn't require any more human capital than it already exists in your schools. Um, ideally, what it does is it creates a more attractive set of working conditions for teachers that get them to stay for longer, which we know has implications longstanding for student achievement. We have to start thinking beyond it being about a teacher shortage. It is about teachers who are not staying in the profession, teachers who are leaving. And so instead of thinking, oh, how do we get more teachers in the program? I teach a, a Grow Your Own program in Mesa Public Schools that ideally will recruit teachers to the profession. I have 80 students in this class about future teachers. And it's not about getting all of them into the profession. It's about building a profession that is sustainable and satisfying for teachers so they want to stay in it longer, which will inevitably lead to better academic outcomes for students. All right. Lennon, thanks a lot for the conversation. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mark. Lennon Audrain is a teacher at Skyline High School in Mesa Public Schools and a researcher on the Next Education Workforce team at ASU. State lawmakers are continuing to debate election-related bills. Some of the recent proposals include getting rid of vote centers and requiring all voters to re-register every decade. The fates of bills like these are uncertain, though. Even if they make it out of the legislature, Governor Hobbs seems likely to veto them. With me to talk about what's been going on at the state capitol is Jen Fifield of VoteBeat. Good morning, Jen. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being here. So let's talk about a, a pair of Republican bills that uh, look at the voting process, one of which would eliminate voting machines. This, of course, has been kind of a bugaboo for some in the GOP for a few years now. Right. So we are seeing um, some of our most far right lawmakers come in uh, attempting to re uh, represent the people that they were elected by. We have people like Wendy Rogers, Sonny Borelli. Uh, John Kavanaugh, Anthony Kern, bringing in these extreme bills that would change voting uh, dramatically, such as, you know, requiring you to go within your precinct to vote instead of vote centers. And then this, the most extreme uh, is eliminating the use of the machines that count your ballots. So when you're at vote centers, you put them in to machines. Um, if you cast your vote by mail, they put them into a machine to count what uh, votes you selected. Instead, we would be counting every single vote on every single ballot by hand. This is coming from the conspiracies in 2020 that said that voting machines do not count ballots accurately. What do supporters of this particular proposal, the voting machines proposal, say about, A, the evidence that suggests uh, that machines are far more accurate than humans, and B, that it would take forever to count all those ballots by hand? Well, I think that if you told them that the, it was more accurate to count by hand, they would say, how do you know? They want to see inside the vote of voting machines. They want the software. They want to know whether there's an algorithm set up to switch votes. None of this has been proven. None of this has uh, any evidence. Uh, in, there's no evidence of vote switching. There's no evidence of rigging the voting machines. But uh, they do want more transparency in, in how the voting machines work. That's fair. Um, but instead, they just want to say, you know, you know what? 
no more voting machines. We're just going to hand count them. Everybody come in on election day and help us. And what's behind the effort to get rid of voting centers? Obviously, in Maricopa County, there were some problems with the printers uh, at the voting centers last year. But what is is that sort of the, the main driver here? I don't think so. I think the vote center uh, concern is more about, again, the hand counting concern. But what they want is they want us to go back to a larger number of voting centers. So go back to the precinct model where you have to vote in your neighborhood. That's like 700 to 800 centers across the county compared to about 200 vote centers. And then we're going to hand count the ballots once you get there. So it's more about the entire plan that they have to you know, eliminate voting machines, to make you vote in person instead of sending your ballot in. It's, it's, all, it's all connected. And presumably, voting in your precinct for a lot of voters is a lot less convenient because if you don't work near where you live or your kids go to school not near where you live, that's a, a, long, that's a long commute back and forth. Well, there's there's an argument either way, right? You could say it's more convenient because it's going to be a mile closer, maybe, to go to your vote center. Or you could say it's less convenient because I work all day, you know, when the polls are open and I have to drive so far to get back to my precinct. But I think the real issue here is the provisional ballots that happen when you go to the wrong place in a precinct model. So if you have to go to just one location, you can't go anywhere. If you cast a ballot at the wrong place, your ballot is rejected entirely. We used to see thousands of those. Right. So let, let me ask you about a bill that may actually get some bipartisan support, which would make ballot images public records. What What is behind that one? This came from Senator Ken Bennett during the audit of Maricopa County's 2020 election. He, after that, thought to himself, you know what? There is distrust Uh, This probably wasn't the best way to do it, to spend our summer counting ballots in this Coliseum. But instead, maybe we could make our ballot images public. So there's nothing, no identifiers on your ballot. You don't put your name, uh, your social security number, at least you're not supposed to. Some voters may sign their ballot Mm. um, out of pride. Um, And then make those public records, put them online with a record of how how generally people cast ballots in their precinct and who they voted for, not tying that to your name. And this is a public audit idea that everything would be posted for people to consider. Now, this is something that I believe uh, Senator Bennett met with the governor about and has said that, you know, this might be something that she would actually consider uh, signing, which is the only thing you need this year, really. You need uh, the governor to okay your bill. Right. Well, and interestingly, both Bennett and the governor are former secretaries of state as well. So they have some inside knowledge of how elections actually work. They do. You know, the counties are opposed to this idea. Um, They say we already have these audit uh, procedures set up. Our elections are safe and secure. So there are there is some opposition to this idea and they don't have the Democrats on board, which I believe Senator Bennett said uh, this. This is key to getting our governors to support it. Right. All right. Lots more to come on these bills. No doubt that is Jen Fifield with Vote Beat. Jen, thank you as always. Thank you so much. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, the Diamondbacks are one of the first MLB teams to sell ads on their jerseys. If you're a fan of international soccer, international cricket, international rugby, uh, all of those sports have uh, for many years had ads on the uniforms. But it hasn't been uh, the norm here in North America uh, until the last few years. We'll hear from a uniform expert about what this means for those who love the game. 
But first, every year state lawmakers introduce and debate gun-related bills, both those that seek to expand where and how gun owners can have and use them, and measures that would limit those things. This year, as my next guest writes, guns in schools seems to be a prominent issue. Gloria Gomez is a reporter for the Arizona Mirror. And Gloria, you've written about a few of these proposals, some of which are not new. But does anything stand out to you when you look at these bills as a group? What stands out to me, I suppose, is that these are uh, affecting schools. So whereas you usually have bills that are trying to be gun-friendly or um, help regular people in everyday situations have more access to guns or to be able to carry their guns in more places, these are specifically focused on schools. Um, And you're right that a lot of the legislation uh, tends to be repeats of things that didn't pass last year. And I think another thing that's important to keep in mind is that one of these in particular seems to be parroting NRA lines um, and trying to, I guess, give the NRA a foothold into classrooms. And that's a bill dealing with uh, a training course, basically, right, like a gun safety course for for some particular students. What exactly would that bill do? Right. Um, So what that bill would do is it would mandate a firearm safety course in middle and high schools. Um, so it is billed as sort of trying to prevent accidental gun deaths or injuries among kids, which is, I think, according to a 2021 report, um, one of the top three preventable deaths for minors in the state. Uh, so it would basically hire an agency to come in and teach about firearm safety, and the sponsors have sort of billed it as safety over there there won't be any handling but it's not really what it says in the bill like there is potential for guns to be brought in and um the important piece is that it sort of pulls language right from the nra website and critics are sort of worried that it will uh lead to more kids being pulled in the gun culture so this is not just to be clear this is not like a how to shoot a gun class this is what to do if you come across a gun somewhere and, like, who to tell and what to do with it. Right. Uh, The sponsor, Representative Bliss, um, said that any program that is taught to students should come from the premise of stop, don't touch, go tell a parent. But that's sort of, that's like the logo or the catchphrase of Eddie the Eagle, which is this uh, really criticized, heavily criticized um, program forwarded by the NRA to teach gun safety to elementary kids. So that program, Eddie the Eagle, wouldn't necessarily be put in schools, but a version of it might. And um, Bliss sort of repeating Eddie the Eagle's catchphrase is a big indicator. So one of the other bills that you write about deals with parents who have a concealed carry permit, and it would basically allow them to bring their gun into a school if, as, long as, as long as they have a permit and it remains concealed? Right. Yeah. So currently right now, parents can have their unloaded firearms in the car with them. If they're in the car or if it's, the car is locked, the firearm is unloaded and it's out of sight. But what this bill would do is it would allow anybody with a concealed carry permit onto school grounds with a gun, whether it's loaded or unloaded, as long as it's on their person um, and they have a permit. And And, it is specific to parents, so not just anybody. And for supporters of this bill, why do they think this is needed? Senator Champ has sort of sold it to lawmakers as a way to make sure that parents who 
forget that they have a gun on them because they're used to carrying when they rush to school, you know, because their kid got injured or is in trouble and they forget that they have it on them. Um, she worries that um, current statute will punish them for that, for even if they have no intention of, you know, breaking the law or causing harm. Obviously, a lot of Democrats are not on board with this. What are their biggest concerns? Um, the big concern, I would say, is that it just puts guns in reach for kids, right? So they're worried um, that a, a group of kids in the may be able to have easier access to a gun. And with the spike in uh, school shootings, that's not something that they want to see. So the bills that you write about are moving through the legislative process. Is it safe to say that they're probably not going to be met with a signature from Governor Hobbs? Yeah, it's highly unlikely that they'll be signed by her. Um, Besides the fact that she uh, is pro-schools and anti-anything that puts more burden on teachers, Um, which these bills seem to do, or at least put them in danger. These bills don't seem to have garnered any bipartisan support, which is a key thing for her. Let me ask you specifically about the the, um, training, the safety training, because you mentioned that it was sort of a heavily criticized uh, program from the NRA. What do critics contend? Like, and, uh, you know, what are their what are their issues with with teaching kids about, you know, not picking up a gun that they find lying around? Right. Um, I guess the big criticisms are is that it takes away from teaching time. Teachers are concerned that they would have to add to their workload. Um, And then another argument from critics is that the way that it's framed, it doesn't seem to come from an area of gun safety prevention. So critics say, you know, if you're really interested in teaching kids about gun safety, uh, you should source the program from organizations that are actually promoting gun safety. All right. That is Gloria Gomez with the Arizona Mirror. Gloria, thanks a lot. Thank you. The Great Migration, as it's known, took place during much of the early and mid-20th century and marked one of the largest movements of people in our country's history as black Americans moved out of the South and into the rest of the country. Our next guest says black America is experiencing another great migration today. Adam Mahoney covers climate and the environment for Capital B and is out with a new story about the large number of black people who have moved to Phoenix over the last decade and how few of them are finding a better life here. My co-host Lauren Gilger spoke with him more about it. For the first time in decades, tens of thousands of black folks every year are on the move. Um, they're leaving the coast and the Midwest looking for safer, more affordable, and uh, quite frankly, blacker communities. Mm-hmm. And a, a lot of this growth is happening in the South, in Texas, and along the Gulf Coast in Florida and the Mississippi River, which we all know are hot spots for flooding, severe weather, um, and, and those kind of things. But a lot of the growth is also happening in Western outposts, um, particularly Las Vegas and Phoenix, which we mapped out in our story, which, you know, as you know, each face their own unique challenges in terms of climate change, rising heat, depleted water levels and increased air pollution. Yeah. So what does this look like in particular here in Arizona and in Maricopa County? You talked about the number, the sheer number of black Americans who have moved here in just the last you know, decade or so. And it's it's a whole lot. Yeah, I mean, it's almost 100,000. According to the U.S. Census between 2010 and 2020, um, at least 70,000 black folks moved into Maricopa County. And since January 2020, actually within Phoenix, the black populations increases outpacing every other racial group. 
uh, so, you know, we're seeing the rebirth of, of kind of a black hub, um, especially in South Phoenix, where black residents have lived for decades at this point. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about South Phoenix, where a lot of the story is concentrated. You're focusing on the lens of climate and environmental equity and justice here. South Phoenix has, you know, as you said, traditionally been a black community in in the valley, but also has faced a lot of inequities when it comes to not just environmental, but housing policies over the years. Can you give us a little of that history? Yeah. I mean, what we found in South Phoenix was pretty disheartening, but not at all um, uncommon, especially in cities where redlining and segregation defined life for much of the 20th century. So, you know, up until the 1960s, Black residents were pretty much relegated to to living in South Phoenix and also doing all of their daily activities in South Phoenix, um, rarely ever, you know, being able to venture in downtown and into North Phoenix. Um, and even today, that kind of racism indirect and direct uh, has guided a lot of experiences for for new residents. What does it look like in terms of environmental inequities that you were able to get a lot of data on today? Yeah, so one of the things that we did in the story, we mapped out where Black residents in Phoenix are concentrated compared to where industrial sites in the city are located. Mm-hmm. I mean, if folks don't know, Phoenix is in the middle of a, a pretty substantial increase in air pollution. Um, today, the, the metro areas top five for ozone pollution in the United States and top 10 for particulate matter pollution. I mean, a lot of that comes from industrial sites, right? And what we found is more than 40% of the city's polluting sites are actually in South Phoenix, although South Phoenix only makes up about 10% of the city's area. Hmm. So that's a huge, uh, you know, obviously disproportionate amount of pollution being concentrated in that area. And it tends to get trapped because of the South mountain, Mm -hmm. ozone stays for a longer period of time in that region. Hmm. What about when it comes to the heat? You know, heat doesn't necessarily discriminate, but policies tend to do that. So, you know, for years, people have talked about Phoenix and its rise in heat um, and how that will impact everyone, you know, no matter your income level or or your race. But what we've seen, um, according to data that was shared with us from the county, that a disproportionate amount of you know heat-related illnesses are being found in South Phoenix and additionally across the county are impacting Black residents disproportionately. Um, and that is because of a, a lot of different factors. Um, mainly, you know, in South Phoenix, up until the last couple of years, it was an older housing stock. So folks were living in poorly insulated homes, not having the best access to health care, air conditioning, and those things, which, you know, predispose you to, to heat-related illnesses. Um, and when it's all said and done, since 2017, Black residents have died from extreme heat at a rate that's like nearly three times higher than white residents and four times higher than Latino residents in Maricopa County. Wow. You also talk in the story about like a struggle to find roots is the way you put it and like and community, right? Um, tell us about that and some of the people that you profiled here. Yeah, that was it was really interesting for me, you know, obviously not being from Phoenix. <laughs> I had the idea that when I came that I was gonna spend, you know, a couple of days door knocking and walking through neighborhoods and communities. And I got there and, you know, it was 105 degrees every day and I couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I talked to new residents and, and that's one of the things that has kind of hindered that that community growth, right? So I, I spoke to Afia Purvis who moved to Phoenix um, in the early 2010s. And she said, you know, it's literally just 
too hot to be outside. So then you don't see people in your community. You don't know your neighbors as well because you're not crossing paths with them. And I, I spoke with one resident, uh, Rashad Thomas, who moved to South Phoenix uh, in 2016, I believe, who has had a very uh, personal relationship with extreme heat and, and pollution. Uh, when he and his, his wife moved to South Phoenix, um, they found out that they were pregnant, um, expecting a child. And, and within a couple of weeks, they lost the pregnancy. Mm. Um, and Rashad has attributed that to you know environmental racism, living in a community that is deeply impacted by pollution, which is, you know, studies have shown to be tied to preterm births, uh, low birth weights, in addition to, uh, you know, losing births prematurely. You also talk a little bit about maybe the upside to this, right? Like there is a community of people here who seem to be trying to make a difference um, in, in a lot of these key ways, even though it might be tough. Tell us a little bit about the efforts to to combat some of these issues and some of these inequalities. Yeah, so there are, there are dozens of groups across Phoenix and in, in South Phoenix specifically that are working on a whole bunch of different issues that are that are plaguing the Black community there, really. We have Mass Liberation Arizona, who I attended one of their events in August, you know, with 50 other community members, many of whom said this was their first time getting involved in organizing. At the event, folks talked about decarceration efforts, ways to get grocery stores into the community, ways to get folks registered to vote, uh, and all the all the different things that are, are negatively impacting folks there. You know, and at the core of it was the idea of community and building that relationship so they could have that kind of sustained movement on the ground when different things pop up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I want to ask you, lastly, Adam, like as a as a part of this broader project, I mean, how do you think the the cities, not just Phoenix, but a lot of these cities where a lot of these issues are cropping up, could do this better, like could be more welcoming, more equitable and 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 help people from the black community find a place here? Yeah, I think to to quote Colette Watson, who was interviewed in the story in Phoenix and across the country right now. In many ways, developers are calling the shots, right? Um, with home prices rising exponentially over the term of the pandemic, that has dictated life for a lot of folks. And, and people are not necessarily focused on or caring about building up community in addition to building houses and, and increasing whatever economic investment they're seeing in these places. So I think it it's about welcoming folks in addition to like giving people resources to build that community, not to be <laughs> redundant. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, when we're thinking about climate change, one of the ways that folks are able to survive in the face of, of severe weather disasters is because they have these sustained networks. They know their neighbors. Um, they know where to go in time of crises. But if you're a new resident, not all of those things are readily available to you. You don't know that information. But if there is that sustained movement on the ground, it makes it so much easier. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. All right. That is Adam Mahoney, climate and environment reporter for Capital B, joining us to talk more about his story about Phoenix. Adam, thank you for coming on. Thanks for your reporting on this. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me.
Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. Over the weekend, the Phoenix Mercury re-signed two longtime cornerstones of the franchise in Brittany Griner and Diana Taurasi. Griner, who was released from a Russian prison in December, inked a one-year deal with the Mercury. She had posted on social media soon after her release that she did plan to play for the team this year. The Mercury also retained their star point guard Diana Taurasi on a multi-year contract. The WNBA's all-time leading scorer will play in her 19th season, although she has struggled to stay on the court in recent years due to injury. Joining me to talk about the moves and what they mean for the upcoming season and beyond, I'm joined by Cassandra Negley, women's basketball writer for Yahoo Sports. Good morning, Cassandra. Good morning. How are you? Doing all right. Thank you. So let's start with Brittany Griner, who, of course, went through this horrible ordeal being uh, detained in a Russian prison. The U.S. said she was wrongfully detained, finally released a, a little while back and did say that she had planned to play for the Mercury. So I guess this isn't as much of a surprise, maybe, that, that she signed the contract with the team. No, I don't think it's a surprise that she signed with Phoenix. It is kind of surprising for a lot that she would want to play, but I think everyone is really excited to see her back the way that we saw her in 2021. Is there any kind of sense from anyone in the league about what to expect from Griner on the court this year? Well, she's a top tier player still. I mean, she finished second in MVP voting in 2021. I think the one concern will be mentally and physically, if she's ready. I mean, this is going to be a longer season, 40 games. It's going to be really tough given what she went through in Russia. So I think it remains to be seen what will happen. Yeah, I wonder if maybe there might be games, you know, we talk about load management a lot in the NBA. I wonder if there might be some kind of load management for mental health reasons, perhaps, for for Griner coming up in this season. For sure. And, you know, Free agents are already talking about the charter flight issue and the Mm -hmm. reason, the biggest reason they brought it this season was because they're concerned about Brittany Griner flying commercially and being around fans and things like that. So it will be interesting to see if they maybe sit her a little more or are really paying attention to her on those back-to-backs or in certain cities, like you said. Right. So let's talk about Diana Taurasi. The Mercury sent out a press release over the weekend saying that the GOAT is back, standing, of course, for the greatest of all time. Tarasi is, of course, a fabulous player, but recently, as I mentioned, she's had a number of injuries and hasn't played as much as, as maybe she would like. Yeah, yeah, she is. I think that's the one huge downside. I mean, it's a huge signing for the city, for the fans. We saw it in Seattle last year with Sue Bird. People embrace their goats. They want to see them keep playing. And Diana can go off on any given night. I mean, that's that's a fact, but She'll have to stay healthy, especially, as we said, a long season. Um, She hasn't. She's played, I think, a little more than 50 percent of games the past three or four years. She missed two playoff runs. She has to stay healthy. What do you make of the fact that Tarasi signed a multi-year contract with the Mercury? (laughs) I think, as we've said before, that um, Diana does what Diana wants to do. I mean, she's just going to keep playing until she wakes up one day and suddenly decides she doesn't want to. I mean, she seems to have no quit in her. So I I truly believe she'll stick around for two more years. And she said she wants to play in the Olympics in Paris. Wow. Okay. So let's talk about what these signings mean for the Mercury. Obviously, it was a a difficult season last year for a lot of reasons, uh, not the least of which one of their star players was wrongfully detained in a Russian prison. But having Tarasi and Griner back, what does that mean for the outlook for the Mercury for this upcoming season? 
Well, I think it's huge. So the biggest thing that Phoenix lost last year was Griner on the glass. They dropped from, I think, second in rebounding in 2021 to 11th of 12 teams in 2022. So that's going to provide more opportunities for their offense to do better. Um, Diana is still a prolific scorer. She can get points any given night. Uh, I think the question marks that we kind of see with them are going to be Skylar Diggins-Smith if she plays after pregnancy um, and if they can have those role players step up around Brittany and Diana's health. It seems as though the WNBA may be starting to move slightly into a sort of a super team era. Uh, we saw that with uh, Brianna Stewart uh, deciding uh, where she was going to play based in large part on mm-hmm. who her teammates would be. I wonder if having Tarasi and Griner, like, does that, can they compete with some of the other teams who have, you know, other, you know, real bona fide stars? Yeah, I think they can absolutely compete. Um, Diana spoke with reporters for a few weeks ago from USA Basketball Camp, and the one thing she kind of left reporters with was it comes down to chemistry, and it remains to be seen on these teams if they will come together as a super team, if they can stay healthy, you know, if they can get lucky. And I think Phoenix will compete with kind of the top. Um but if, if these super teams do stay healthy, if they come together and gel well, which I think is most likely possible, I think it's going to be really, really tough for Phoenix to keep up with them in the long haul. All right. So lastly, before I let you go, how important is it for the franchise, the Mercury, that Griner and Tarasi are back? I think it's huge. This is a huge moment for the WNBA. You know, it keeps growing every single year. We're seeing players marketed a little bit better and and growing their popularity. And so for Phoenix, they've loved Diana for so long. They have loved Brittany for so long. They've been a stabilizing presence for that city and that fandom. And I think it will be a special season to see them back together, especially given that, honestly, when we talked this time Last year, you know, 10, 11 months ago, we didn't know if we would see Brittany Griner in the U.S. again. Right. All right. That is Cassandra Negley, women's basketball writer for Yahoo Sports. Cassandra, thanks for your insights. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. The Arizona Diamondbacks open their spring training schedule on Saturday when they take on the Oakland A's. And earlier this month, the D-backs unveiled their new jersey patch sponsor. In other words, which company would pay to place an ad on their uniform sleeves? Valley tech firm Avnet is the sponsor. The ads will be worn starting this season. This is the first year Major League Baseball teams can sell ads on jerseys, and the Diamondbacks are one of a handful who have so far announced they're doing so or that they plan to. I spoke earlier about this with Paul Lucas, founder and editor of UniWatch, which focuses on sports uniform and logo design. And I asked how we got to the point that some MLB MLB teams will have ads on their jerseys. You know, sports around most of the world has had uh, some form of advertising sold on the uniforms for many years, many decades. If you're a fan of international soccer, international cricket, international rugby, uh, all of those sports have uh, for many years had ads on the uniforms, but it hasn't been uh, the norm here in North America uh, until the last few years. The NBA was the first of the the four major pro leagues to go this route, and that was in 2017. Teams started selling uh, advertising space on their uniforms. Uh, The National Hockey League started this current season with ads on their jerseys. They had already started selling ads on their helmets the season before that. 
Uh, and now Major League Baseball will be starting this season. Uh, and it's sort of ironic that the NFL, which is the league that's often uh, thought of or uh, critiqued as being the most commercially driven of the big, uh, the big four pro leagues, is going to be the last ad-free holdout, at least in terms of ads on the uniforms. I'm curious what you make of what the Diamondbacks will be doing. They'll have a patch for Avnet, which is a Phoenix area tech company. I'm curious just aesthetically and, and you know, from that perspective, what you make of it relative to what some of the other teams are doing. Uh, well, we've seen only a handful of, of what other teams are doing. Uh, the Padres were the first team uh, to reveal their uniform uh, ad patch. Uh, the Red Sox have also shown us their ad patch. Uh, and now uh, the Diamondbacks. So there isn't a lot of uh, context, but I would say that uh, the Diamondbacks uh, ad is certainly very large. Uh, it's unmistakable. It's not quite visible from space, but it's close. <laughs> um, it's, uh, for me, it's sort of this big honking reminder that they've sold space on their uniforms. And interestingly, it's going to be on whichever arm is facing the camera, right? Like it's not going to be on the same side of the jersey, the same sleeve for each player. Right. The uh, the NBA and the NHL have had jersey ads on the chest. So it's, those ads are basically front-facing. Uh, but Major League Baseball has decided to do them on the sleeve. And the handedness of the player will determine which sleeve the ad appears on. So uh, they want to maximize camera exposure based on uh, the player's batting stance or the pitcher's uh, set position on the mound. Uh, depending on the player. Uh, of course, that raises the question of what they'll do for switch hitters. Uh, you know, if you're if you're a player who's a switch hitter and you bat both left-handed and right-handed, depending on the pitcher, are you going to change jerseys in the middle of a game when the opposing team changes pitchers? Uh, we haven't had an answer to that question yet. Uh, I, I think probably, I think the answer is probably not. I don't think players are going to be changing jerseys uh, mid-game. But I do think if you're a switch hitter, which jersey you wear, you may have two different jerseys in your locker with the ad on each sleeve. And which jersey you wear may be determined by the opposing team's starting pitcher that day. That's really interesting. Do you get the sense that these are going to be lucrative for teams? Like, are, are companies willing to pony up a lot of money to have their, their ads on the sleeves of MLB jerseys? Well, it depends on what you describe as lucrative. It's been reported that the Cincinnati Reds, who have not officially revealed their uniform ad yet, um, but Sports Business Journal has reported that their their ad will be with the supermarket chain Kroger's uh, and will be for $5 million for a year. That's not really that much money in the grand scheme of baseball economics. $5 million buys you really like a bench player. It's not really that much money. But again, that's the Cincinnati Reds, who are a fairly small market team. I think larger market teams like the Red Sox, like the Mets, say, who said they are looking for a uniform advertiser but haven't yet revealed who it'll be. Uh, the larger market teams command a higher price just because they play in a bigger media market and have more eyeballs watching their games. So in a lot of ways, this is going to be a case of the rich getting richer, the bigger market teams who already command bigger TV rights deals with their regional TV networks, uh, bigger, you know, bigger everything. They're going to command bigger deals uh, for these uniform ads as well. Do you think that eventually all MLB teams will do this? Like, I'm a Yankees fan. Do I need to look for a future in which there is a big ad on the pinstripes? Uh, it's a really good question. I, I think most teams will certainly do it. Uh, I think when anything like this happens in baseball, the, the immediate question is, even the Yankees? Will, will the Yankees do it? And 
you know, when when baseball introduced the uh, Players Weekend promotion, when players wore their nicknames on the backs of the jerseys, and people said, well, the Yankees aren't going to do that. But the Yankees did do that. And when Nike took over uh, Major League Baseball's uniform program and everybody started wearing the Nike logo on the jersey chest, people said, well, not the Yankees. They're not going to do that. But the Yankees did do that. Uh, and so the question now becomes, will the Yankees uh, want that extra revenue of, of, you know, from an ad on the jersey? It is worth noting that the Yankees are among the handful of teams. They're not the only holdouts, but they are among the handful of teams who have not sold the naming rights to their stadium. And I think that's because the Yankees understand that there is the value in the brand of Yankee Stadium. It may not be measurable or quantifiable, but whatever it is, it's worth more than than any kind of monetary value they could get from selling the name of the stadium. And they may decide something similar about the uniform. Right. So I'm curious why you think it is that teams are not calling these ads. They're calling them something totally different. Yeah, the typical term we see throughout the industry is sponsorship or patch position partner or patch entitlement partner or this sort of tortured corporate speak. Uh, And I think the idea is that sponsor sounds like a term of fellowship and goodwill and advertising sounds like a term of commerce or even greed. Uh, And, you know, let's let's call it like it is. This is basically a function of greed. Uh, Teams don't need this money. No major league baseball team is going broke. Uh, this is just a new revenue stream that they can command if they choose to. So you mentioned the NFL is the only now North American sports league to not do this. Do you think that they will at some point? Uh, it's interesting. Uh, I, I have to say I'm a little surprised the NFL has held out the way they have. It, it's tricky with uh, with football because you know you have a giant number on the front of the jersey um, and it, that's different than the other sports. Uh, so an ad would have to compete with that. Uh, helmets are obviously very important in football. Uh, so do you want to put an ad on the, on the helmet somewhere, like a little decal on the back of the helmet? I have had conversations with NFL executives. They have basically said to me, like, never say never, but they don't envision it happening. That's, that's what they've told me. So uh, I'm keeping my, as, as somebody who likes a clean, uncluttered, ad-free uniform, I'm hoping the NFL holds out. All right. That is Paul Lucas, founder and editor of UniWatch. Paul, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. And that'll do it for this Tuesday edition of the show. Thank you, as always, for being here. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. Have a great rest of your day. See you right back here tomorrow. That's it for this episode of the show's podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, you can visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Lauren Gilger for Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.